Today on episode number 268 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Christine Renaden shares about Sonoma State's second-year research and creative experience. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today, it's another episode that's part of the Teaching in Higher Ed and California State University collaboration to bring you a series of podcast episodes that feature superb educators who will change how you think about your teaching in powerful ways. The episode series brings on faculty who are transforming the lives of students every day. These individuals embody the California State University's commitment to achieving their educational goals through innovation and leadership. Today's guest, Dr. Christine Renaden, has taught French language, culture, and literature, and she is coming on the show today to tell us about Sonoma State's second-year research and creative experience. This experience is designed to serve sophomore students where retention used to be the weakness. The program began as a constellation of 10 courses designed for second-year students to fulfill the requirements of general education in one of their academic areas called C2, Literature, Philosophy, and Values. This program offers students a multidisciplinary approach to a common topic renewed every year. Circe has been offered every semester since 2014, with Christine serving as coordinator while teaching the theater arts and dance seminar. Every year, 480 students are offered this opportunity to inspire others, their peers and professors, but also high school and college freshman students, as well as other members of the community who attend the public symposium. Christine, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you. Hello. We've been able to learn a little bit about your background, although the bio is really focused on this second year program that you started. I'd love to have you share first just about your academic background before we specifically dive into the second year program. Okay. Well, I started my uh, graduate studies in France and uh, got an MA in French literature there. I was a medievalist at the time. And got a doctorate here in the United States from Cornell University, and that was about Voltaire and the representations of a body in his tales. And then that feels like a long time ago. (laughs) (laughs) And from there, I guess I diversified my interest and got interested in a number of authors, including, you know, Malika Mokedem, for example, from Algeria, and Desquiron from Haiti, and probably my favorite author is Marguerite Duras, whom I teach every chance I get in my literature classes in French here. When I look at your background, 
you seem very much, you, you mentioned that feeling like a long time ago, you seem very much today comfortable in a space of being more of an interdisciplinarian. Does that description fit you well? Absolutely. I have always enjoyed literature and I also have cultivated a passion for dance and the performing arts. And I am also doing some creative writing and some painting even. So yes, I would say that interdisciplinary is a key word in my professional and personal life, I would say. This is where I feel good. I could tell. I had, I had this feeling. That's not something that naturally happens for a lot of us. We almost have to back our way into it because when we get our doctorates, they're yes. very, 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 very specific. And then in our teaching, I think it really values our students that much more when we can broaden back out again. That's true. And especially, you know, when we want to commit to this concept I call the whole student, embodied ways of learning, those are important concepts for me. And I have always tried to conjugate, possibly, my love for literature and for other forms of art as well. In the past, the word or the the phrase embodied ways of learning, it, it comes up a lot. Would would you explain it to me like I'm eight years old, <laughs> just, just in case, you know, because I think there's so much richness there, but I might get lost in just um, feeling intimidated by this term. Yes, it's, it's probably overused these days anyway. But let's see, here is an example that maybe we'll talk to you. I don't know if you've ever learned another language, probably, yes? Sign language, um, yes. <laughs> many, many moons ago, yes. You, you don't know French, do you? No, no, my mother does, I do not. So imagine yourself for the first time in a French class where you know nothing and you feel that you're back to being five years old because you can't say anything. You know, mm-hmm. you cannot translate into words the maturity of your mind, right? And that's very frustrating. Yes, at first. Yes. One way to get over this frustration, which is extremely natural, is to play the card of play and bodily play. So I always told my students that in a dream world, I would be able to teach beginning French in a gym where they would be able to run, to jump, to interact in wild physical ways so as to reconnect with this child that is learning something new at that level, you know, at that level where it doesn't matter so much that you cannot translate your mind already. There are other things that you can communicate with and build upon each other, like a game of blocks, for example. I don't know if that makes any sense to you, does it? Oh, it really does. And and <laughs> one of the things, because I, I love your invitation to picture myself in a French class, because that's, you know, right away, I, I could feel myself going there. And if I stay in my adult mind, then I worry about what other people think. And I worry about that I'm not good enough to learn this, that my my brain combined with my mouth won't be able to, you know, to produce what I'm expected to. But if I connect with the inner child that I have, one of the things I notice, I I have two young children, five and seven. Mm -hmm. And if I allow myself to enter into their worlds, they don't spend time thinking about what other people think. That's not ever a thought that seems to come across either of their minds, maybe my son a couple of times, but very, very rarely. What it enhances in them is their ability to notice things. 
Yes. And and you, in this new world, your dream world that you described in a gym and fully embodying my learning of French, I imagine that I would be able to notice more just about the process of learning. That and also the process of relating, you know, when you as an adult are kind of regressing to this world of a child where you, you, you cannot function as an adult yet because you haven't learned the tools. You don't have enough blocks to build your castle. Yes. Yeah. Then you have to rely on other forms of communication. And this is where playfulness comes into play, if I may say, and is very helpful. And also body language. So here you go with the idea of embodiment, you know, you embrace the concept and the learning process, not just from your mind, but also from your whole presence. And that includes the material, physical presence. I also hear you saying that my physical presence and fullness in that will allow me to relate to the others that are there too. That's the idea. Yeah. That's the idea. And therefore, you know, the fact that you don't have so many words is less of a frustration and more of an inspiration to get to know more. Is there anything else that you want to share about this idea of the whole student? So if we're experiencing these embodied ways of learning, how does that enhance our, is it our identity as, the, as our whole student or is there more to it than identity? Hmm, that's a good question. I think, well, identity for sure. But I think also that, and they're linked, I think that we retain more from the experience, you know, mm -hmm. because it is inscribed in our bodies and in our minds in not necessarily conscious ways all the time, but perhaps more profound ways, wider, you know, we, we cast a wider net around the object of our learning. I hear that. The other thing I think of when I think of the whole student, I don't know if I'm projecting more on your ideas than, than belong, but, but just this idea that if I could connect with that child in me, then I do get to bring my whole self. I don't have to cover parts of it up. Right. And if I may transition to what we do in Circe. This yes, year, yes, please. And creative experience. The fact that, you know, it's built as an interdisciplinary course with a team of 10 instructors and so we present the students with uh, various facets of the same problem, of the same topic. And some of it is dance, some of it is literature, some of it is philosophy, some of it is music. So this kind of interdisciplinary approach, in my eyes, also solicits the whole student into the learning process. You know, wh whether or not you're a music major, you are going to be exposed to some music and even some music making, which will address the whole student. Again, you know, you will be asked to participate in some impromptu concert or in some impromptu singing together or making some music. You know, for example, fairly recently, our music instructor engaged the whole community of Circe into playing a uh, composition by John Cage, clapping our hands. Mm. Well, let's spell out the acronym. So it's the Second Year Research and Creative Experience. And yes. let's talk first about why you found it important to build this whole program around the second year when so much of what at least I hear is focused on that first year experience? 
Okay. Well, that's a very simple story. It's a very grassroots idea. I was chairing our school curriculum committee, and I was, of course, encouraged to look at retention and the graduation initiative. And I realized that sophomores were the least best served, if mm. I dare say. You know, we had courses for freshmen, courses for juniors, courses for seniors, but uh, nothing specific for the second year students. And that it was a vulnerable place where some students decided to drop, to not continue. So from the point of view of retention, it seemed worth our while to develop something that would help them stay, help them keep believing in the process. So that's where the idea came. So I started to sketch an idea and presented it to my dean and then a small team of colleagues that we took to a workshop organized in Sacramento by the Council for Undergraduate Research. The dean came with us. We presented our idea. It was, it was the form of a workshop, so it was actually quite fun. And came out of this experience thinking, yes, this is a good idea. This is a good idea that we could implement next semester if we hurry up. And so we did. A big challenge you were trying to address was retention and meeting the needs of this perhaps underserved Yes. Demographic. What were yes. some of the other goals you had around creating this new program? We also wanted it to, to serve the student in practical ways. So we made it a general education course that would fulfill uh, the area C2, literature, philosophy of values. And that would also engage the whole school. We wanted it to be a, a school enterprise. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we had a brand new building at the time, Schroeder Hall, uh, which was built to host the choir at Sonoma State University. Beautiful building that seats 240 students or people. And so with our goal in mind and the idea of using this beautifully and newly built hall, I started to work. And I imagined this, uh, okay, we can fill the hall, 240 students if we have 10 instructors, that's 10 seminars of 24 students, that's reasonable for a GE, second year GE course. And then how to make it interdisciplinary, how to make it a collaborative experience for the instructors involved. And that's when I came with this idea of devoting, it's a four unit class that we teach in two meetings a week, two, two hour long meetings a week. And so I decided to structure it with a big lecture on Tuesdays and seminars, discipline-specific seminars on Thursdays. So that on Tuesday, all sections are together in this beautiful hall and all instructors as well who sit on stage because there is no room in the house when the <laughs> class is full. Mm -hmm. And also because I thought that it might be a good idea to model for the students what it means to listen to each other with attention, you know, without looking at your phone, without having your laptop distract you from what's being said on stage. In other words, you know, model that, model attentive listening, active listening. And also for the instructors, I wanted it to be an experience of sharing, of learning from each other. And I have to say, this has been one of the most rewarding and most poignant aspects of the experience is the, I would say in French, esprit de corps, 
the team spirit that was created between these instructors. And they're not always the same. You know, some of them have been in the experience mm -hmm. from the beginning. <laughs> But every semester, we have some new faces that replace somebody on sabbatical or, or just join for the first time. And that has been something beautifully rewarding mm -hmm. for me personally to see this happen. What you said about modeling this deep listening for the yeah. students really resonates with me. And I'll try to ask this question delicately, because I'm sure neither I nor you would like to insult our colleagues here in a public space. But nonetheless, I, I wonder if you had to name that and stress the importance Because I find even some of my colleagues, that isn't the first place we're always able to go. We get, we get a little impatient, just like our students get impatient, you know. So, so is that something that needed to be practiced among your colleagues to be able to model it for the students? Yes. I, I don't know if I had to say anything, but I did say something. Mm. I, did, I did mention that it was one of my goals, that I wanted us to do this. And there was some resistance at the beginning. I won't hide that. But soon enough, soon enough, the resistance gave way to a collaborative spirit and, you know, authentic respect for each other and so on and so forth. And I think that it's powerful to show this to our students, you know, that we can enhance each other's efficiency and creativity by listening, learning and supporting each other. One of the ways that I know you are able to corral is the wrong word, but to create more um, cohesion is through a Canvas site for all yeah. 10 of the sections. Would you speak a bit about how you went about that? Any, any lessons learned from that process? Yes. It's always difficult to tell your colleagues what to do, no matter how excited they are about the new venture. Yes. So the Canvas site provided a way for me to, as coordinator, to lay the structure for the course, you know, making sure that we had commonalities in syllabi. You know, I constructed a syllabus, a general syllabus that people used, again, as a canvas, altering the things in the syllabus that were specific to their discipline. So there are common goals and at the same time, individual goals in each syllabus, right? And the canvas site is only for the Tuesday lectures. This is where the Tuesday lecture series is posted. And this is also a way for me to communicate with all participants in Circe. And when I say participants, I mean the students, of course, but also the instructional team, our dedicated librarian, and also our peer facilitators. We have a few peer facilitators. So all these people are participants and they all have access to this site, which is Mostly, you know, we don't record grades on this because each instructor is, is responsible for his or her own grades, but it's an informational site where you have uh, what's happening on a given Tuesday, what are the two lectures of the day, what is the special feature of the day, and then it's a way for me to send emails, reminders, announcements, requests, and so on and so forth. We've talked a lot about the structure. We've looked at the goals and some of the lessons learned along the way. We're kind of missing a really big thing, which is the, I don't know if theme is the right word for it, but I, I think we're going to go back in time on this one. <laughs> Would you explain the background of the time machine for us? I will. And then I, I want to make a tiny detour. Here. Oh, sure, sure. So I emphasize the idea of 
collaborative work between the instructors. But uh, this is also something we model and we encourage our students to do collaborative work. Their participation culminates in a symposium, a public symposium at the end of the semester, where they present their semester project. And these semester projects can be individual or collective or collaborative. They range from the traditional research paper to the podcast, to the live performance, to digital humanities, and so on and so forth. So that said, let's talk about topics. So these 10 instructors, 10 discipline-specific seminars all tackle the same topic. This year, it's the 1960s. But we started way back where uh, we started with 1848, which was by far the most difficult one because the, the further removed we are from a uh, contemporary period, the, the, the more difficult it is for our students. You know, mm. I'm, I'm sure you know that. Are yeah. you going in order, in chronological order, or are you hopping all over your timeline? We're hopping. Okay. So we started with 1848. Then the following year, we did the 1960s then the 1970s, then we went back on the fourth year to the 1930s because we thought there was a certain relevance to our times as well. And this year we're back to the 60s and next year we're bound to revisiting the 70s. Mm. And would you share for either the 60s or the 70s just some examples of these various disciplines weaving their way in? This semester, we have a little bit of a smaller class. We only have seven sections. But let's say last fall, when we had a full plate, we have a section in American Multicultural Studies, a section in Chicano Latino Studies, a section in Communication and Media Studies, English, Modern Languages, Art and Art History, Music, Philosophy, theater, arts, and dance, there should be 10 in that list that Mm. I just mentioned. (laughs) I'm impressed. (laughs) And so, you know, we had the students learn a few steps of the twist, for example. I mean, this is just a detail, a funny detail to engage the whole student in the big auditorium. Can you imagine? Oh, I love it. So what I do is that next week, for example, I'm going to call a meeting with the people who will be teaching Circe next semester. And we will share, everybody will share three topics of interest from the point of view of their discipline about the 1970s. And uh, they, they don't have to come up with full titles yet. I'll ask that about midsummer. But the topics within the topics will help me create a coherent lecture series, you know, articulating. So a total of 30 lectures in the order that, that seems the most exciting, the most interesting. And then tag also to these lectures. We usually have two lectures per Tuesday plus a special feature. And the special feature is usually either a guest speaker sharing a more personal experience or it can be a selection from a movie that illustrates one of the lectures that preceded or it could be guest performers. It can be a range of things. And it depends, of course, on these topics. I can't really decide which special features I'm going to add until I know what people are going to speak about, because those special features are supposed to either complement, supplement, or contrast with what we're talking about. As you're describing this, I'm thinking back to my freshman year experience when I was in college, and it was structured very similarly to what you described with the one huge exception without, we didn't have really a showcase of our, a 
accomplishments. It was more of just a paper that would be only read by the professor. But it's so memorable for me, just those opportunities. Ours was called War and Peace. And I can still remember getting to hear from a Holocaust survivor. I still can remember some of the books that we read. And that was a very long, long, long time ago. (laughs) It's always fascinating to me what sticks with us from our educational experiences. And what you've described here is, you know, the strengths of lectures, but negating some of the weaknesses by allowing people to embody their learning in the ways that you've described. Right. And giving them a full range of options to do that, you know. Yes. Not limiting ourselves to the the traditional research paper, which has its place. There is no question. But for a lot of people, it's it's not at this point in their life, in their college career, perhaps the best way for them to shine Mm -hmm. and convince themselves that they can keep shining, you know? And the other really distinctive area of your program that I'm learning from is just this idea of well, well, first you shared about modeling that deep listening in our learning process. You're also modeling the ways in which our disciplines are interwoven with each other. Yes. And we sort of sometimes just make that assumption that students will be able to do that naturally. And I do not find that to be the case. I don't find some of us as professors are able to always do that. And what a wonderful way to model and to really have that learning taking place, as you mentioned earlier, not just by the students, but also by the people teaching the classes. Yes. And Bonnie, you know, that was something we had to learn. Mm-hmm. It was one of the difficulties that we tackled early on. How could we connect these lectures together? You know, in in the seminars, when the students meet with their discipline-specific instructor, there are really three big tasks. Debriefing the lectures from Tuesday, one way or, or the other, making connection between these lectures that are not necessarily in their discipline and their own discipline, covering some discipline-specific material, and then, quote-unquote, workshopping the semester projects, right? And so this idea of connection, making connection, teaching the students, inviting them, making it possible for them to draw connections between not only the events that happened in a given decade, but between the various approaches to the same decade. Mm. You know, that's something we had to work on. It did not come necessarily easily, you know, to a lot of us. But now I think we're doing quite a good job about it. It comes a lot more naturally. We quote each other in our lectures. You know, the bridges happen a lot more naturally than, say, that first semester we started it. (laughs) From what you've described and what we shared before we started recording, too, though, I suspect you're not done yet and there's still areas you want to grow. You really model for us just this quest to continually improve and find new opportunities to support our students and their learning. Yes, there is always plenty to improve. (laughs) (laughs) This is the time in the show where we each get to share our recommendations. And I have a musical one today. People who have been listening to the podcast for a while know that I am a fan of jazz. And I'm also a fan of musicals. I have really good memories of growing up in San Diego and going to an outdoor theater that sadly is no longer down in San Diego, at least it's not operating in its past form. It used to be that they would put on musicals every week during the summers, and it's right there by the San Diego airport. 
And every time that a plane would fly over, the entire orchestra, all the musicians, the singers, everyone would freeze in place until the plane had gone past and then they would just resume. And it cracks me up because here I am so many decades later, still when I hear an airplane, I always feel like everyone around me should freeze until (laughs) it's gone past. But it's really funny. So one of the musicals I can remember watching was South Pacific. And today's song I'm going to recommend is called Happy Talk, which was in that musical. And just as a side note, it's still a really good musical, but there's lots of problematic things in it as far as gender and race and ethnicity <laughs> and war. I mean, there's just all kinds of problems with it, but it, it's really good music. And the artist I'm going to recommend today, her version of it, it's Karen Allison. And she has a whole album of singing Rogers and Hammerstein songs. And so I'm going to play just a little bit of her version of Happy Talk. Happy Talk, keep talking, happy talk. Talk about things you like to do. You gotta have a dream. If you don't have a dream, how you gonna have a dream come true? Talk about a moon floating in the sky. It's such a good song, and she has such a wonderful version of it. So I'd suggest that for my recommendation, everyone go have a listen to Happy Talk, done in a little bit of a new and interesting way. And so that's my recommendation. And Christine, now I get to pass it over to you for yours. Okay, so I have two actually, Bonnie, a very general one, and then a more specific one. The first one, very general, is that I would recommend that everybody learn another language whether it's a, you know, another language that you speak with words or uh, with your body only, you know, like dance or music or anything else like that, something that is different, something that you don't know, something that forces you to develop a second operative system mm. in your brain. <laughs> and so that's my general recommendation, of course. And the other one is a choreographer, whom I discovered about 10 years ago while in France uh, directing the CSU program abroad. And I discovered it on TV. She's a Canadian, French-Canadian choreographer called Marie Chouinard. And I'm reminded of her because very recently I had a chance to, for the first time in my life, see her work live in Vancouver, BC. And I know that she was in Portland, Oregon recently, and she has been in California, although a while ago and has not been recently. Anyway, I recommend her work very much. It's beautiful. It's definitely postmodern, I would say, with very well-trained, very classically trained dancers. I find it very creative, edgy, moving, and I recommend her to people who don't know her. Wonderful. We'll be having links to all of the things that we recommended in the show notes. And I'll also be linking to information about this program that Christine, you and your colleagues have put together. I just appreciate so much you taking the time out of your day today to speak to me about these great inspirational programs. And I'm sure we each have something we can take away from your contribution today. Well, thank you very much, Bonnie, for inviting me. It has been so inspiring to have this opportunity to talk with Dr. Christine Renaton. 
What an inspiring conversation. I've got so many ideas of how we can take our students' interests, all these various disciplines, and combine them into a shared, embodied learning experience. Thank you, Christine, for that. Thanks to all of you for listening. If you want to get the links to all the great things that we spoke about today and the recommendations, you want to subscribe for the weekly update because that'll mean you'll get a single email in your box in most weeks and that will have an article about teaching or productivity written by me along with the most recent show's show notes. You can subscribe at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. I'll see you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.